Good morning. My name is Dan. I'm one of the preachers here at uh, Grace Fellowship. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 2, which is around halfway through your Bible. Isaiah chapter 2, I'll give you a few moments to get there. Privilege to open God's Word with you today. If you could change one thing about America right now, what would it be? Some of you might already have something in your mind. If you do, write it down or just keep it tucked away in the back of your your head. We're going to touch on it later. For now, though, we're going to plow through three chapters of Scripture in a relatively short amount of time. And because of that, I want to first draw your attention to two things that were mentioned last week. Because I think they're really going to help. The first thing is that as we began our sermon series through Isaiah last week, we saw that the sins of God's people were described as personal. God's people turned from God in their individual efforts of religion and and social responsibility. And this week we're going to focus on corporate failure. In other words, how Israel has failed as God's representatives to the world. And the second thing mentioned last week is that Isaiah may at times seem a little bit repetitive. I hate to break it to you, but you're going to see it already in the second sermon. But I promise the reason for it is the same as Isaiah's. We really want to drive the point home. Because as God's people continue to regress, first personally, and now on a, on a, on a social, on a corporate level, they're going to become all the more in need of a Savior, even as they become all the more less deserving of a Savior. Now, some time has passed between chapter 1 and this text, and we don't know how long. But just as it was in the last chapter, God again offers his people a way out. And in fact, he begins with it and it's bigger and better and he seals it with a promise. But in the middle is a hard reality. It's what we heard last week, but dialed up. The whole flow of my argument is on your outline. First, God's people are promised to be a future light. To the world. Secondly, they have a present problem. The darkness of their sin. And third, the eternal solution to the problem is a promise. So there's the good news, and then the bad news, and then the best news. Let me start by reading the first five verses of chapter 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, 
neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Now just imagine how these words might sound to God's people who have enjoyed the promised land for so long, and right now it looks like they're going to lose it. Let me just draw your attention to the few of the phrases in these five verses. And imagine being an Israelite and death is knocking on your door and then you hear these words. The mountain of the Lord will be the highest. Verse 2. Again in verse 2. The nations will flow to it. Verse 3. God's city will be the source of all knowledge and rule. Verse 4. God's city will be the source of all judgment. In verse 5, there will be peace and the house of Jacob, that is all the Jews, are invited. It would seem. Now I'm not going to dwell on all this for more than a few moments because I'll be coming back to it later. But as you read these words, you could imagine how easily these words would be interpreted as a military or political victory. We're going to win. Remember, these people have been doing all the sacrifices and the religious rituals so they would easily assume light must be on the horizon. And in a way, they're correct. But, if you remember Peter's words as he walked us through chapter 1 last week, there is a warning implicit in all of this. And it's that utopia is not possible without the God of the Bible. Not then, not now. And God's people, though they may earnestly believe that they are on God's side at this point in history, they're not. Corporately, they couldn't be any further from it. This is our second point. Don't get too eager. The second point is very long. And this next portion of text is so massive that I'm not going to read all of it. I'm going to move us through portions of it to draw your attention to Israel's corporate failure and the consequences that are now on the horizon. So I'm going to start with the first half of verse 6 of chapter 2. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob. That you referred to here is God. Isaiah is not even talking to the people at this point. God has rejected his people. We read in chapter 1, their hands are filled with blood. These sacrifices that mean nothing. Or another way of saying it is God's people have failed God. And verses 6 through 8 is a list of these offenses. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines. And they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold. And there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. 
Now to Israel at this point in history, and to most people now, what I just said doesn't look like failure, does it? This might actually look like the utopia. Was one of these things the thing you'd change about America? A little more money? A little better economy? Maybe a little bit more diversity? But again, the promise, the problem with the city that God's people live in now is that God hasn't been invited. Their land is filled with silver and gold, filled with, with horses, filled with idols. It is not filled with God. It is empty. God set, God set Israel apart to be a light to the world, and instead they are filling themselves with darkness. They depend on riches and, and mysticism and, and formal agreements with people who have no regard for God. And so God is against them. But they started it. I'll just read verse 12, though verses 11 through 17 elaborate. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. In other words, God's sword is going up. This peace that we read about in 2, 1 through 5, it's not coming yet. God's sword is going up. But you know what? It's not against the invaders looming on the borders. It's against his own people. But this is actually for good. Look at God's motivation in verses 18 through 22. And the idols shall utterly pass away, and people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. When he rises to terrify the earth, in that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the rocks, from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Do you see God's motivation? It, it sounds terrible. But it's actually merciful. Look at the good things that are happening here. Verse 18. Idols will be destroyed. Literally. will be cast aside. Verse 19, the people will be brought low, terrified rather than proud. And in verses 20 and 21, they will know that God is almighty. In verse 22, that they're nothing without him. Painful, but good. To the Jews here, they very well know that this is how God deals with his enemies. But what might shock them is to realize that they're the enemies. You can even imagine, at this point in history, a spiritually blind Israelite, at this point, praying to their distorted idea of God, the enemies are coming! Save me! And God is saying, in mercy, you're already dead. The enemy is already here. And you held the door open for him. 
How many of us do this? We worship our little ideas of utopia, and then we beg God when those idols start to kill us. After going for a little for a little longer here, because Isaiah does not stop, he continues showing just how offensive these idols are to God. And Isaiah lists a whole bunch. I don't feel like I'm going to do chapter three justice, but I will touch on the, what I think are the top three. All this is is the fallout when people, even in rich, secure countries, get exactly what they want. I've grouped them together into what I think are three categories. The first is the idol of security. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Let me read. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply. And all support of water, the mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the man of rank, the counselor, and I'll, I'll just stop there. Just think of that playing out here. No bread, no water, no soldiers, no judges, no prophets, no spiritual leadership. And the list goes on. You know, I, I love State College. I think we're doing pretty good economically and all that. But pick just one of these things and take it away. Now take away all of them. How long would this city really last? Keep going here. The idol of moral relativism. This is covered in verses 4 through 8, as well as verse 12. So write that down if you'd like to take a look later. But I'm just going to read verses 5 and part of 6. Just give you one example of what this looks like. And the people will oppress one another. Everyone his fellow and everyone his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder and the despised to the honorable. For a man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, you have a cloak, you shall be our leader. All this is here is the destruction of community and neighbors and families and the natural order that God has set up for good. I would actually say removing this is more dangerous than cutting off the water because it kills you more slowly. Let me just isolate one of these examples. And I didn't even cover all the verses. Look at what verse 6 is saying. A father overthrown. Man will take hold of his brother and say, you have a cloak, you shall be our our leader. Parents, I want you to imagine what would happen to your house if dad just gave up and the oldest child now runs the show. Or just imagine any Sunday, any Sunday morning here where no child obeys one word of any adult. Is that, is that too close to home for some of you? <laughs> I'll let that thought marinate for a moment as you imagine that on a national scale. Let 
Number three, the idol of beauty and riches. And this is covered in verses 17 through 24, but I'm just going to read verse 24. It says this. Here's the picture. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. And instead of a belt, a rope. I'll make this short because I think it sums up the heart of the problem. God's people might look beautiful on the outside, but they are paying no care to their souls. In the church level, this is a preacher who gets up in a three-piece suit and does not preach the gospel. So on a national scale, What's happening here when God takes away the beauty of the people? All he's doing is making the outside of his people look just like the inside. God's people were supposed to be the light. He brought them out of Egypt for that. But no matter how much they've built up their economy... And wrote their own rules. And dressed themselves up over the course of the entire Old Testament. Deep down, they couldn't help it. They loved the darkness. Do you know what would be hardest about living during this time in history? If you really treasured God. And all of this destruction was happening around you, and you couldn't stop it. This was Isaiah's burden. So I love what he says in the midst of all of this. Two little verses that are full of present home for Israel, as they realize, maybe, they maybe realize the chasm between the prophesied utopia in chapter 2 and this present darkness. Verses 10 and 11. Take a look with me at this hope in the midst of the darkness. Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with him, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. Here's what he's saying. Ultimately, it will go well for the righteous, though they may presently suffer under the consequences that result from the sin of the world. In other words, it will go well later, though it might not look that way now. So take heart. Keep focused on being righteous. Don't get distracted. And Isaiah then says that it will not ultimately go well for the wicked. Though they may not presently suffer under those same consequences of sin. In other words, it will not go well later. Though it might not look otherwise now. So do not take heart. Here's the implication for the people of Israel through all this. Since God determines the final outcome, make allegiance to God your top priority. 
Don't be distracted by present trouble or the prosperity of the wicked. And don't think the solution is as simple as a new king or a better economy or even secure borders. Those things are fine, but you know what? Israel, at one point, had all of those things, and they did not have God, and so they had nothing. This is a hard implication. Because my day can be made or broken by news. Positive or negative. National, local, or personal. It doesn't matter. I can go so far as to judge the quality of a day on how well I think it went rather than asking this one question. How obedient was I to God today? How about you? We live in such a dark world, don't we? We can put our hope in this stuff. The world is so dark, and yet we still try to find light in it. Instead of pursue the God who made it. And here's the part where we need the best news. The present darkness of Israel does not make the promise of chapter 2 void. Point 1 is still true. Utopia is still coming. And it's so much better than the little ones we dream up. This one lasts forever. And we can even get a taste of it right now. Point 3. The eternal solution of God's promise. I'm going to read verses 2 through 6 of chapter 4. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day and for the heat from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. So how do people consumed with darkness, as we see in chapter 3, become the city of light we see here in chapter 2? I mean, even on a pragmatic level, there would have to be survivors. And God promises that in verses 2 and 3. But then he sets them apart in verse 4 by cleaning them. You might say that the blood on their hands 
is going to be washed off. And this happens, we see, by a spirit of judgment and fire. And that's how we get the city of light. And then as we think back to chapter 2, and we consider the rest of the Bible, we start to see who this promise is really about. Though Jesus Christ is not mentioned by name anywhere here, he is loudly present. Consider these verses from the New Testament. John chapter 12, verse 36, verse 46. This is Jesus. It won't be up there. It won't be up there. Just listen along. Jesus says, I have come into the world as light. So that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. This is the same imagery as chapter 2. Matthew 5.14, Jesus again, he says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Again, this is the same imagery as chapter 2. So God's the light, but then we get to be a part of that light. How does the transfer happen? Isaiah already gave us a clue. In chapter 4, verses 4. The cleansing happens by a spirit of judgment and burning. And that falls on Jesus. Even pragmatically, consider the history. Israel doesn't get any better between Isaiah's time and Jesus' time. There's a remnant. They're no more morally correct. Because you know what happens? The people respond to Jesus the same way they responded to Isaiah. They rejected him. Jesus knew that, and he took it. God poured out judgment, in other words, on Jesus, the light of the world, that we, as Paul would write later, we who were darkness are now light in the Lord. And the light doesn't go out. Jesus, when he rose again and ascended, sent the Holy Spirit. And that sounds a lot like the constant refuge and protection for his people that we just read about in chapter 4, verses 5. That smoke and that fire to guide and to never depart and to constantly be with. You might even compare it to the way God guided his people day and night. Just as he did in the book of Exodus as they left Egypt. It was God all throughout history. Guiding his people for his glory. So this wonderful city of light we see. This glorious future is made possible by God and for God. And many smart people, people smarter than me, think that all of this that we read is a picture of heaven. And I think that's true. But I think we see more than that here. I think this city of light is a picture of the church. Where people from every nation come. And where God judges. And where we say that one another every day. And on Sunday, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. 
because he has washed us clean. This is a picture of that city. This church. So how does all this apply to us? I'm going to speak corporately. First to the Christian. Number one, walk in the light. I gather that from chapter 2, verse 5. Don't love the darkness you once loved. Whether you see it out there or whether you see it creeping in here. Long for spiritual maturity. Long to see this place full of mature believers in Christ. I would go on, but I actually don't have to. Because the elders, during the congregational meeting later, are going to talk about stuff like this. So walk in the light. Number two, encourage the righteous. This is from chapter 3, verse 10, that word of hope that Isaiah gave. As life gets hard, and you hear the groanings of your brothers and sisters here, walk with them. Again, I would go on, but I don't have to, because we just had a baby dedication. Think life's gotten a little harder for them? Little kids running around, they're cute, but they keep you up at all hours of the night. You just promised to help them raise their kids. Remember that. When you hear screams, don't do this. Go sit next to them. Go help them. As a member, you get to help raise children, even if you don't have any. That's because we're family. Lastly, warn the wicked. Chapter 3, verses, verse 11. This one might be a little harder, and I think this might be where the, the struggle really comes out for us. As you meet people who need Jesus in your neighborhood, at your job, at your school, in your house, by all means, have them for dinner at your house. By all means, throw a block party. By all means, plant an organic community garden if you really want to. But we could unify this whole city and if nobody hears about their need for Christ, we lose. It doesn't end with the block party. It starts there. That's not the gospel. And on a side note, I'm going to add one more thing. Not that I think any of the preachers here are wicked, but I ask this. As you listen during the sermons and you bring your friends, help us who preach to preach well. We want to call people to allegiance to God and nothing less. We want to warn the wicked. Help us do that. The application for the non-Christian is a good bit shorter. Number one, and this is the, pretty similar to last week. Know that the world's corporate problem is not security, it's not beauty, it's none of those things. The corporate problem is sin against God, and the solution is allegiance to Christ. 
none of those things will save you. None of those things will save America. None of those things will even save this church. Only God will. And secondly, pledge allegiance to God. And then follow the applications I just told the Christians. So here's the short version of what I just said this morning. Through the promise of the Messiah, God will not only redeem his people, but he's going to make them the light of the world. And that's why we, just like the faithful few in Israel, why we can have hope even as we suffer under the effects of sin and injustice. Because for those who pledge allegiance to Jesus, who don't lose sight of the big picture, the promise, it will go well because there is a light that will never go out. And that light was not Israel. And it is not America. It is Jesus and he lives in us. And we're invited to his city forever. Let's pray. God, we can get so concerned with our own security. We can get so concerned with our outward appearance. We can get so concerned with the news of the day. Little things can make or break us. Texts, emails, they puff us up or they drain us. And we forget all about you and your promises. And those idols are exposed. Lord, help us to call one another to full allegiance to God and help us to trust in Christ, knowing that he is the light and that light is in us and we will dwell with you forever. Amen.